Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. Coming up on ESPN on Ice today, we're talking about the Rick Nash trade derby. We're talking about the most long-suffering fan bases in relation to the incredible curse that's been lifted from our good friends in Philadelphia by virtue of the Eagles winning the Super Bowl. We also have Sonny Mehta, the former director of hockey analytics for the New Jersey Devils, with a pretty lengthy and interesting conversation that involves a lot of poker. Yeah, and this dude doesn't talk to a lot of people on the record about his gig in the NHL. So it was a real honor to have him in studio uh, to delve into all that stuff. And uh, let's get started. From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. Welcome to ESPN on Ice, the podcast where ESPN covers hockey. I'm Greg Wachinski, senior NHL writer for ESPN. I'm Emily Kaplan, a national NHL reporter for ESPN. If you're a dedicated ESPN on Ice listener, you'll notice that we talked before the intro, and that's because we've been hearing from you that the intro is both loud and scary. Yeah, it was the whistles. We heard about the whistles, and listen, we're listening to you, so you can listen to us. <laughs> the, the last thing we want is for you to put on our sweet podcast, expecting to hear our dulcet tones, and then it's like Hans Zimmer music from the movie. <laughs> like you put in your earbuds and it's like, Bwam! and then and then like all of a sudden you're dropping your coffee, you're falling off the treadmill. Like this is these are none of these things we want to happen. Yeah, we really were being proactive here. We wanted no treadmill injuries, really no elliptical injuries. That's what I'm really worried about with our fan base. So. Mm. It's hard to hurt yourself on elliptical yeah. as the dedicated elliptical user. Mm, I don't know. There have been times when my my foot has slipped off an elliptical because it, the 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 foot thing doesn't have the little ridges on the side yeah. to keep your foot in place. That's about it, though. I think I think a, an elliptical is exponentially safer than than a treadmill. Yeah. Well, if you can stay on the elliptical, you can listen to our show. How about that? I think that's fair. And also, I like using the elliptical better because when I run on the treadmill, if I feel like a a, a, a woolly mammoth trampling things. <laughs> It just doesn't seem like it's something that's built for me. Um, anyways, uh, so, hey, Super Bowl, congratulations to our friends in Philadelphia. Uh, Sarah Baker from the Devils and Travis Hughes from SB Nation and Johnny and so Gaudreau many, from the Flames. Johnny Gaudreau from the Flames and so many others on the, on the big Eagles victory. As I said before the Super Bowl, uh, this matchup between the Eagles and the Patriots was like finding out that the only cure for cancer was punching kittens in the face. I still kind of feel that way, but I also feel like good. Cause I think like Nick Foles is a great story. Um, that was sort of a heartwarming thing. The, the backup nobody wanted all of a sudden comes back and wins the Super Bowl. I actually, I actually saw Carson Wentz got engaged. Did you see that in the last uh, 48 hours? You know what? I haven't. I've been he got, off Instagram. He, he got engaged. Uh, okay. I, I, it's kind of a weird thing. You'd figure that his uh, girlfriend, now fiance, would be tipped off by the, the professional photographer on the rooftop <laughs> where he was asking her. Like, that'd be you a pretty what? good tip off. She was in tunnel vision. Yeah, clearly. She clearly. just saw her handsome hubby. Um, but I can't help but think that, like, if things don't work out between them, and obviously I'm rooting for him, but if things don't work out, Nick Foles is there to kind of yeah. take over and lead be, that thing uh, to the promised land. <laughs> who would be the NHL's version of Nick Foles, the guy who was, like, about to quit? Nobody oh, wanted, man. shoved around. Well, like Steve Mason. I, well, it wouldn't. I, maybe Steve Mason. Like if if Haliabak got hurt and Steve Mason had to take How over. You pronounce like, it, Haliabak. Haliabak. Yeah. If he if he got hurt and then Mason took over, 
um, well, from Jersey, then that would be kind of a Nick Foles thing. I mean, the guy who was Nick Foles, you know, made bank from the Carolina Hurricanes and then was terrible this season. And Scott, Scott Darling. Darling. Yeah. No, Scott Darling was a Mike Lennon. That is peak Mike Lennon. <laughs> That's like the exact same situation. And aren't they both gingers? Yeah. Shout out to our Chicago listeners. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was, I was happy. What'd you think of Yo Bowl on Sunday? Were you happy with it? Yeah, it was good. You know what? I was a little disappointed by the commercials, but the best one, obviously, was Odell Beckham and um and Eli. Eli, with the dirty doing, dancing I'm thing. sorry. Yeah. I was just obviously daydreaming about how amazing it was. <laughs> so I did get a text that came through my phone. Yes, yeah. I mean, as soon as you see Odell Beckham get into the Jennifer Grey pose, then all of yeah. a sudden, all it was thoughts just beautiful. disappear. That's I really crazy. liked the uh, the one that ranked rather high on the uh, USA Today ad meter that I may or may not get up at six in the morning to read every year just to see which ads I liked that other people liked. Uh, the one where the, the Alexa one, where they had all the celebrities doing the yeah. Alexa voice, and Alexa lost her voice. That was really really funny. Only oh. For only the only re- I mean, for the sheer reason that Anthony Hopkins had a a, a peacock farm and was feeding peacock, peacocks while doing the Alexa voice. So that was incredible. That's, yeah, it was all right. Whatever Super Bowl. I the only thing I thought of when I saw the adulation for the Eagles after that game. I mean, part of it obviously is thwarting an evil empire, but part of it was also like this outpouring of affection for a a struggling. Uh, uh, you know, long drought fan base that had been waiting their entire lives to see their team win the Super Bowl. As a New York Jets fan, I was wondering if my team would get the same level of love. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> I think I, they might. You think so? I feel like there's an entire contingent in life, much like with the Maple Leafs, that would be completely content if they never saw the Jets win a Super Bowl, much like there's people that would be completely content if the Leafs never won another cup. Like, I feel like that's my lot in life as a fan. But then I think you get these bandwagons where, like, they're such lovable losers that you want to jump on. And and this is going to be our jumping point into this next topic of what team has such a tortured fan base that we're, we're really kind of rooting for. And for yeah. me, it's the Blues, and I'll tell you why. But I think the light, I mean, I think the Tampa, wow, not the Tampa Bay Lightning, the Toronto Maple Leafs. I'm really struggling today. I'm, I, I have to give a disclaimer. I'm really hopped up on cough medicine, fighting off what I think is pre-flu uh, symptoms. And I Everybody think it's has helping. flu right now. It's fine. Yeah. Anyway, so my point with Toronto is that, look, they, it was just such a tortured history that who doesn't want to get on that Austin Matthews bandwagon and, and Mitch Marner, you know, looking like a little evil kid out there scoring all those goals. And Morgan Riley is kind of a lovable guy. I, I think we could all get behind them. Yeah, I think the Austin Matthews thing shifts the paradigm a bit, especially for us here in the States, where we would love nothing more than to see an American bring a Canadian franchise to the promised land. And the only reason it ever happens is because of a kid from Arizona. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful idea. Um, I, I think, you know, on the one hand, Austin Matthews. On the other hand, the gigantic ego of Mike Babcock. On the one hand, uh, a team that hasn't won since 67. On the other hand, it's the Leafs. <laughs> and it's just like this. It's like it's like the, if the Yankees went through a drought, which they did, I guess, from the seventies through the eighties. But like, it's one of these deals where it's just it's hard to to gin up sympathy for the the century s c e n t r e of the hockey universe. Um, but I, but I think at this point they're they're entering kind of into Cubs land. Where the drought's been so prolonged and, and, uh, and they've been in the, the doldrums for so long that I think people are, I've come around to the idea of, of rooting for the Leafs to finally win. My pick in our, in our piece that ran on ESPN this week, as far as the, the, the fan, the most starved fan bases for a cup that we want to see get satisfied this spring was the Washington Capitals. The Capitals yeah. 
They've never won a cup. Uh, they've been in the league uh, since the Ford administration. And they've only played in the championship round three times. One conference final, uh, and then another conference final, and then, and then getting swept in the cup final by Detroit. Never played for a championship with a veteran on the team. And a weird thing happened. Like, they used to just be a bad team. And, uh, and get bullied and punished by, by teams in the Patrick division and, and the Wales conference. And then when Ovechkin got, got on the team, it wasn't just that they were losing in the playoffs. It was like they were finding new and spectacular ways to lose in the playoffs. The, the Montreal Canadiens won versus eight upset. Uh, the, the so series against, the, our, yeah, the, the Penguins. Like, it's pretty much like the Vikings. It's the Vikings, right. It's like, it's like, how are, what is the, are the most spectacular ways we can fall short of, of, of glory? And, uh, and so I think for me, and maybe it's just sort of the bias that he used to live there. And I know a lot of Caps fans. I know the the, the pain that they've endured uh, in the last decade. That would be my pick. But the cool thing about doing that story was like you come to realize there's like 17 or 18 different fan bases that all feel they're that. That all feel like it's been forever and a day since they won. I had Islanders fans being like, what about us? I'm like, you were a dynasty. You were a dynasty. <laughs> you won so many cups. I See, guess what you... Yeah, once you live through Mike Milbury, though, like as your general manager, you feel like, well, you better race is all goodwill. It, it's like living two lifetimes, really. Um, so they they were like that blues fans. The blues, obviously, uh, the blues were are like ridiculous, that. though, because firstly, they have the second longest drought behind uh, Toronto. They have not won since entering the league in 1967-68. They made the Cup Finals the first three years. They've right. been awesome pretty much since then. They had a really ridiculous playoff streak. It was 25 years. They won the President's Trophy. They've had all these stars, and they can't win. It's just like, dude, what's wrong? Mm-hmm. Then you have Vancouver. That's sort of in that same boat. They had yeah, obviously Vancouver's two. because they weren't included. Yeah, they, and they had two extraordinarily memorable visits to the Cup Final in the last Recently. Uh, couple couple decades against the Rangers in 94. Uh, and then obviously the, the best Cup Final I ever covered, not because of the hockey, but because of all the other stuff, <laughs> the, the uh, Boston Vancouver Final. Yeah. Um, you know, I I, I, my, I I think they belong on that list. Uh, you know, I, I think there might be other teams in, in the queue or online, as we were talking about before the show in front of them. Stop being I so say dirty. online, and Emily and the rest of the planet says inline when you're waiting in a queue. So I'll, I'll, I'll my friends will be like, "Where are you? Where are you right now?" And I'll be like, "I'm online." And I'm like, and you're you like, know you're that. always online. <laughs> Get it? He's an internet guy. Yeah, I'm an internet writer on Twitter. Um. It's a, it's a big po- a point of contention. It's just like, I, I believe it's a colloquialism because I grew up in central New Jersey. Others have told me that I'm just a, an idiot and that it, it, that's not a thing anyone should say. And it's not a geographic sp- specific thing. But, I'm not as bothered as that as I was in your pronunciation of the word radiator earlier. Radiator. I Yeah, yeah I'm baffled. <laughs> All right. All so, right. Th- so if you're if you're one of those tortured fan bases, hopefully uh, all of you, um, you know, get your cups eventually. Especially you, Vegas. We know that you're the most tortured of all of them. Uh, Rick Nash uh, is a big topic of conversation in the league right now. Obviously, the news broke via Bob McKenzie that Nash has given his list of teams to whom he does not want to be traded, as per the terms of his no trade clause in his contract which means that the Rick Nash Derby is underway in the National Hockey League. The last thing we heard a couple of years ago was that his no-trade list included all the Canadian teams. If, if you remember when the trade happened with the Rangers, it was after Nash kind of let it be known he did not want to play in Toronto, uh, the pressure being too much for a kid from Ontario. So one assumes that's still the case. We've made some assumptions as to what teams he might go to. Where do you think Rick Nash ends up? 
Well, that's the funny thing is there's just the assumption that he doesn't want the spotlight, but then somehow ended up on the New York Rangers as their highest paid <laughs> player. So, like, I don't really get it. Uh, I think that of the teams that he probably cleared, I think he wants to win a cup. I think that these are definitely teams he believes can contend right now. A team that makes so much sense for him is actually the Penguins. I just don't know if the Rangers would be willing to deal within their division, especially right. on a team that they know is about to surpass them if they haven't already. Um, I think St. Louis makes a ton of sense, and that's a GM that's just not done yet. He always has kind of one move in him, and he's always looking for a guy who's a rental, and that's what Nash is, really. I think the Penguins are an interesting choice, only because if the Rangers end up dealing Nash and dealing Grabner and maybe even dipping in a little bit deeper and, and looking into a trade for McDonough, which has been talked that's about. That's crazy to me. but That's crazy to me, too. But, I mean, that, that that's the level of deconstruction that's been rumored, at least here in the city. Do you know where city. McDonough would make the most sense, and I would love it so much? Tampa? No, if he ends up with the other Minnesota boys in Minnesota. Oh, my God, right? Can you imagine? That's what makes sense, and that's what they I think they would go for it. Like, I could see Chuck Fletcher making that move. It'd be interesting because I don't know asset wise if they want to deal the young assets that the Rangers right. Want he would command like a first round yeah, pick. It's it's not going to come cheap at all. The the Nash to Pittsburgh thing though is like as, as I was saying that like they're going to raise the white flag if 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 they start trading off these players to oh, yeah. say that hey it's not our year. Um, to to that end, if they traded him to Pittsburgh, it's almost like well who cares? You're not going to be in the dance anyway. And he's not going to re-sign there, obviously. The thing with Nash that's interesting is he makes like $7.8 million against the cap. Kind of reminds me of the Eric Stahl trade a couple of years ago where he was making an exorbitant amount of money. Everyone knew he was going to take a pay cut on his next contract. And so his destination was not necessarily tied to a team that was then going to re-sign him. It seems like Nash is your pure rental. I'm, a lot of people are thinking St. Louis, which makes a lot of sense as far as their their need, as far as them maybe being more apt to trade for Nash because he is a pending unrestricted free agent versus a, a year ago where they weren't really into the idea of adding that salary to their cap for a full season. The Rangers obviously would pick up some dough. I think Dallas. Hmm. He and Ken Hitchcock have a history in Columbus. Yeah, I, think I Dallas wants. That. Yeah, I think Dallas wants to add another piece up front, uh, not only as insurance in case somebody up there gets hurt, but also just to add a little bit more firepower and potency to that lineup in a Western Conference where you're going to need it. And um, and he's just a he's just a pro, man. Like, look, you're not getting Nash to to have him uh, be be you know a Con Smythe winner. He's not a guarantee in the playoffs. There have been times with his in his tenure with the Rangers where he's straight up sucked in the playoffs. But you get him to flesh out your lineup. To, uh, to create maybe a, a third scoring line. He does a lot of little things right. He's a really good guy. Um, I think Dallas is a, is, a, is a very logical and interesting choice if, if they want to do business with the Rangers. What's so interesting to me, and I'm coming at it as someone who grew up following the Rangers, my dad is a huge Rangers fan, is like, well, what does this become of this season? And it almost seems crazy that they're talking about a fire sale when they're so well within striking distance in the playoffs. Yeah. And as recent NHL history has told us, you just need to get into the dance and anything can happen. And yeah, I think and- Gordon is okay. saying is like, we only have like four players who are playing well this year. We have Henrik Lundqvist, we have Mika Zibanejad, we have Zuccarello and like Grabner, but Grabner has all these kind of floated stats that I feel like half his goals are, you know, empty netters. He's really <laughs> fast. We, we know he's very fast. Anyway, but the point is, is he's just like, look, we just don't, we don't believe in this roster. And that's really sad. It is. Um, and it's interesting to see Ranger fans approaching this team and looking at Elaine Vigneault and saying, how is this guy possibly still the coach? 
Um, I think, I think he might have more trust for management than, than, uh, is given credit here in the city. Uh, you're right. It, it is baffling, especially when you consider that whenever Hendrik, Hendrik Lundqvist gets into the playoffs, you're basically getting past the first round. Yeah. Uh, but maybe they're playing the long game. I mean, remember coming into the season, they didn't make a move to replace Derek Stepan after they traded him to the Coyotes because they knew about all these kids that they have in the pipeline. They're going to come through, fill the center spot. They didn't want to lock down a veteran in that center spot to them, you know, push down the guys that are currently in the AHL. So if they're playing the long game and they should with this group, then maybe it makes sense that even if they're in striking distance, they still start trading away some assets at the deadline. A McDonough deal for me is a draft day move. It's not a deadline move, but no. you know who who knows how deep the knife will cut. Uh, before we get to uh, our guest and such, real quick, we talked about Pittsburgh at the deadline. I think we agree another forward, probably a center, would be the thing that you'd look for. Do you think Nashville makes another significant move at the deadline, or do you think that Kyle, that's Kyle Turris trade, and of course... The dramatic reunion with Mike Fisher is as deep as they go. I feel like every GM around the league is just like crossing their fingers and praying. Like we knew David Poyle was going to do something. Like please just say it's this Fisher thing. Like that's it. Like <laughs> he's he's got nothing else up his sleeve. I feel like he does though. I feel like he's so coy and he's so you know apt to make a splash um, in any time of year that he sees his team and they're really good, but there's just something missing from making them being dominant. And, and I think they go for it. I think, I think they add another piece and, and surrender maybe one of their prospects. Yeah. I think it, and it, it, to me, they've never addressed the loss of James Neal's goals on the, on, on the wing. And mm-hmm. uh, to me, that's, that's kind of where you look. I'm not quite sure who the options would be. Maybe they were looking at one of the guys from Detroit, a Nyquist or a Tatar or someone like that. Uh, but that's where you look. Um, Tampa, Defense, you think they, they think it would go a little blue line action here? They're, 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 they're pretty stocked up front, I'd say. Do you think I they think add another so. defensive yeah. piece? Yeah, Dan Girardi's been a little bit of a disappointment there. No, mm, I feel bad. <laughs> He's also so nice. You know what? I saw the cutest thing at All Star Weekend. It was he was obviously not an All Star, but it was like one of these fan fests, and he had his two little kids that were just so blonde, and he was walking them across the street. And I was just like, I wish it worked out for you, Dan. Um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I digress. It just looked like he was happy. Uh, yeah, I think they need some blue line help. I think, you know, right now we see a team that might be in a little bit of an identity crisis. John Cooper's such a good coach and I have so much faith in him. And you guys heard him on the podcast. He's just a really thoughtful thinker. And I think he can relate to these guys, but not that they become complacent, but they just might need another dynamic to sustain that kind of success that they had for the first half of the year. And then finally, do you think Vegas makes any moves? Do you think they keep the hand that they were dealt? To put it in Vegas terms. Oh my gosh. Uh, what, what I see there is I see George McPhee is a really smart guy who doesn't lose track of the bigger picture. And he had this long-term plan that obviously got blown up because he thought this was going to be a slow and build from within. I don't think he blows up the plan. I think he knows that this could be a special year and I think they do make a move, but I don't think it's a big move. Like they're not going in on Rick Nash. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see because that, to me, the big thing about Vegas this year has clearly been this chemistry that they have. Everybody in that room right. is, you know, acquired either through the expansion draft or through trades made around the expansion draft. They all have a chip on their shoulder. They're all a big family. They're all going through this journey together. The idea of them bringing in an outsider into that group right now who hasn't experienced this throughout the year, this doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I, I, I know it's, it's, you're almost kind of, you know, putting a narrative on this team in a way to say, well, this is the way it is. And, and sure, they could use some help in certain areas, 
why? I mean, you're playing, again, to use the Vegas parlance, you're playing with house money this year, uh, and everything has gone as well as it has with this group. You might as well just stick with them. And, and the good, the good news for Vegas fans is that since it's an expansion team, there isn't a farm system for George McPhee to trade a Philip Forsberg type for a Martin Erat <laughs> type. So, so you're safe on that score. All right. Coming up after the break. We're going to talk to Sonny Mehta, former director of analytics for the New Jersey Devils, and learn a great thing or two about uh, the numbers game, the NHL, and what happens behind the scenes with NHL teams. Back after this. I love sports. I just wish they could be with me always. They say you don't choose the app. The app chooses you. It is everything I could ever want in a sports companion. It can stream the games and shows that I love. And it's there whenever I need it. I never thought I could find an app that loves sports as much as I do. Until now. Download the ESPN app to stream ESPN Radio and all the ESPN networks now. And we're back on ESPN on Ice. Greg Wyshynski, Emily Kaplan. We had the pleasure of sitting down with Sonny Mehta, former director of hockey analytics for the New Jersey Devils and the author of multiple books on poker, including Small Stakes and the Limit Hold'em. And like Emily and I, a native of the great state of New Jersey. I feel like we should be doing this interview at a diner based on all <laughs> of our... 17. Yeah. <laughs> TikTok diner? Love TikTok diner. That's oh, a great man. one. Yeah. I've, been try- I've been trying to explain to people... I live in Manhattan now. and like I've been trying to explain to people in Manhattan the dynamics of the Jersey diner because there aren't necessarily 24-hour diners in Manhattan the same way there are in Jersey. No. And the great thing about diners in New Jersey was always like uh, finding out the, the, the ethnicity of the owners through the menu... So it's like a Greek diner. Yeah, it's like cheeseburger, chicken parmesan, mac and cheese, and then like chicken Slovakia. Yeah, some some (laughs) Slovenian beef tongue dish that you've never heard of before. It's always an exploration that I always enjoyed at a a Jersey diner. But you are somebody who parlayed a a career, what a career, but yeah, go career, career playing poker. You've written multiple books about it. Uh, and then you uh, parlayed that into a a career in uh, in the analytics world, and uh, in 2014, right, you got a job with the Devils. Was it 2014 was it? Uh, with the Devils, yeah, I yeah. started in 2014. So you became the the first full time analytics director in the NHL for their analytics department, and and that always struck me as fun because at the time Lou Lamarillo was the GM. <laughs> Of the team, <laughs> well, if, if you don't mind, what was what were what what was the numbers talks with Lou? Did you get to do numbers talks with Lou, or is, or there there sort of people in between you and Lou that would kind of translate it for him? Uh, no, I mean i I interviewed with Lou, and Lou's the one that hired me, and I reported directly to Lou, and and Lou's a really smart guy. He taught math when he was at Providence. Um. Talking numbers with Lou was not difficult. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, but it's, but you, so mutual respect for society because you, you're doing math and he's a math teacher. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. Yeah, I got along great with Lou. Lou's, yeah. I have nothing but yeah. great things to say. That about was always Lou. my favorite thing as a Devils fan was thinking about you in a, in a room with Lou. <laughs> and did this crush all of your dreams and no, no, fighting I'm, over a blackboard? I'm, I'm happy to hear it and I think it makes a lot of sense because then when Lou went to Toronto, then, you know, Kyle Dubas is working for him and I doubt that that's happening if Lou isn't open-minded about about analytics and, and things of that nature. But it, it, it shattered my my idea of like, you know, you coming with all these papers and saying we should we should sign this guy and Lou being like, Era, he does not have enough grit. But uh, well, I mean, I won't say that Lou and I 
<laughs> saw everything in the world the same way. That's not <laughs> what I'm trying to imply. I'm, I'm just saying, you know, talking about numbers to him, it's not like he didn't understand or right. something. You know, I mean, he's a very intelligent person. So I just want to back up a bit because Greg kind of, you know, grazed over your bio really quick. But it's interesting of how someone like you would want to get into hockey and how you got into hockey. So what, you know, how did you get into poker first and what led you to take the next step? And what did you see in hockey that you felt was kind of this void you wanted to fill? So I guess as Greg mentioned, I was a professional poker player for seven years. And through that, I developed a keen interest in probability and statistics just because it was relevant for my job. And it was a bit of a side project to apply that type of reasoning to ice hockey. I grew up in New Jersey, as you guys thoroughly discussed. (laughs) Yes. Um, And we all sound like we're from Jersey, too. I love it. Do we? No, none of us do. You think you lost it, huh? Right? You think all your time in New Orleans made you lose your accent. I feel like I, yeah, sometimes it comes out. It comes out. People tell me it comes out, especially after a couple of It comes out when I shout and when I drink. Those are the two times when it comes out the most. Agree. Agree completely. (laughs) Yeah, completely agree. So you're playing poker. So yeah, so I was a, I was playing poker. Um, and on the side, I just thought there was opportunity to apply this type of reasoning to hockey, it was a good bit behind the other sports in terms of its foray into analytics. Mm-hmm. And um, so I taught myself some basic computer programming and started tinkering and building models and things of that nature. And I found the other 10 people on the <laughs> internet who were interested in that sort of thing. And we all became internet friends and, uh, this was this was early. It was probably like 2006 or 2007. Yeah. Where were the stats at that point? I mean, like uh, Corsi was uh, infamously founded by a guy named Vic Ferrari at the time. Tim, yeah, uh, Tim, Tim Bard. T- t- yeah, that was his nom de plume. Uh, but it was that were possession stats sort of being established by other people when you got into it, or were you one of the people that kind of helped develop some of those numbers? It all kind of happened organically. Tim was a huge, huge catalyst in that. Um, the, the play-by-play data existed at that time. Mm-hmm. It's just that nobody had really done a lot with it. And Tim for sure was one of the first people to really dig into it and, and try to do creative things with it. And it sparked this great discussion, you know, like a group discussion with me and him and Gabe Desjardins and, you know, other guys of that time. And, um, I guess the turning point was, out of the blue, I got an email from a gentleman who was about to buy the Phoenix Coyotes. Hmm. Yeah, Matthew Hullsizer. Yeah, right? yeah, Matt Hullsizer. And he's, you know, young finance guy, very much an analytically inclined person. And um, he had read a lot of our stuff online. And so he reached out and said, you know, would you guys be interested in consulting? And we said, yeah. So there was maybe four or five of us who consulted for the Coyotes. And I did that for about maybe six months. And then, <clears throat> unfortunately, Matt's bid to buy the team fell through. As the Coyotes are. <laughs> yeah, I remember yes. watching those Lendell City Council meetings. It wasn't fun. No. no, no <laughs> Kudos to you for watching that. Yeah. Though. Well, I mean, Sonny, it was my job. Uh, <laughs> okay. you know, And also, uh, I was sort of a Parks and Rec fan, so it kind of was very exciting to Wait, see that stuff happen in reality. Just come out and... 
Ugh, save the day. It's the worst. Okay. Yeah. Um, so at least anyway. there's not like C-SPAN on the TV here. <laughs> no, no C-SPAN here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, right. And then, and so when, when the devils reached out, it was actually like there was a pool of, I read there was like a pool of like 500 people that were angling for an analytics job with the devils, right? At that point. That's what I've been told. But that was also three years later. Right. So, cause of my relationship with Matt, you know, when his bid to, to buy the coyotes fell through, he kind of said, Hey, listen, you know, at this point, we'd become friends, and he'd said, listen, why don't you come to Chicago and let us train you to how to trade options? So I was actually <laughs> an options trader between, I guess it was 2011 and 2014. Small side hustle on the side. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I actually loved it. I mean, I it was fantastic, and I would still be there. Yeah. But that's when the Devils also were, had at the time, recently bought by young finance guys, and they were looking to start an analytics department, and mm-hmm. so they reached out to me. When you uh, get behind the the red velvet rope and get inside of an organization after having been outside and you know scraping numbers off of play by play sheets on NHL.com and things like that, when you finally get behind that velvet rope, is it like that moment in in, in Willy Wonka where they open the doors and all of a sudden they go walk into the big candy room for the first time? Look like how much are, data? Yeah, and like all this data and it's accurate. Like, are you are you just like blown away by the difference between what's happening within a team and, and what's publicly available data wise? No, not really. Um, I think more than anything, it's just you know, it's like anything else in life. It's supply and demand, right? So if you it costs money to to get good data if you don't want the free stuff. And, you know, professional sports teams have more money to spend on that sort of thing than you and I do just for fun. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's the big thing. But hockey in general still data-wise is a good bit behind other sports. Is, is there better ways to track some of the things that we track on public sites when you're working for a team? Like puck possession or, or uh quality of teammates, things like that, that, you know, we were, we're all kind of using the same numbers that we're gleaning from the NHL, which is fraught with problems in and of itself. Do yeah, the it teams is. themselves have better ways of measuring that stuff? They do. Yeah, they do. Um, you know, as I said, I still don't think it's necessarily where it needs to be long run and it's not where it is in other sports, but for sure the data that's accessible to teams is quite a bit better than the public data. Mm-hmm. So this is more of a philosophy question, but mm-hmm. I became a little facts, uh, fascinated this offseason when Travis Green became the coach of the Vancouver Canucks. And as you might know, he has a poker background. I played poker with Travis Green. Wait, what was he like <laughs> as a poker player? Uh, you know, I only played with him once, and it was a long time ago. It was well before he was in coaching uh-huh. and well before I was in hockey. And I didn't even know who he was. Until we started talking and he yeah. told me who he like, was. I played for I, a long time in the league. Yeah, exactly. And I said, you know, I'm a big hockey fan and yeah. whatever. Um, we played at a ca- – I think we played in a cash game at the Rio for, okay. during one of the World Series summers. I forget when it was. It was probably 10 years ago. And uh, I remember him being a, a sharp player. Yeah. You know, I mean he wasn't a pro or anything, but he was – he clearly wasn't a – typical fish quote right quote <laughs> so he right. had some you know from what i remember he had some moves he he understood things about the game i remember him he and i talking about a couple poker things and he struck me as a really sharp guy yeah so my point was so he won nearly four hundred thousand dollars which like you said it's not bad for a non-pro absolutely and i'm curious when you look at analytics and in hockey 
I have to think he has to be a good analytical thinker, right? If he's doing I would think that so. well, sure. What other areas do you think data could help? You know, and and we we talk about it a lot with player acquisitions and things like that, but could it help in coaching or other areas of hockey? Oh, sure. I mean, I don't know many areas that analytical thinking couldn't help. Right. You know, maybe uh, my wife would disagree. With that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, as you know, things pertaining to what we're talking about, it's hard to think that it, it couldn't help. How much do you think coaches are willing to kind of look at the data or how many coaches these days do you think are more old school and just saying, I'm putting the grittiest guys out there? Uh, so it's hard for me to really sure. generalize among all coaches because I haven't met them all. Mm-hmm. But my experience actually was that it was surprising to me that, you know, to some extent going in, I thought probably as everybody assumes that coaches would be old school and not interested in this sort of thing. And actually my experience was almost exactly the opposite. Hmm. Uh, in general, the, the coaches that I interacted with, the NHL coaches and professional coaches are some of the smartest hockey minds and they're really, really inquisitive. They're really interested in, getting any kind of edge. I mean, mostly they're just guys that love hockey yeah. and they love talking about hockey. They love anything that'll help them in hockey. They love, you know, so I mean, the more information, the better. Yeah, for sure. I, I want to continue that line for a second, but I do want to revisit your poker days one more time. <laughs> Did you ever play with Kessel? No. Oh man. I didn't. That would have been something. Yeah. That's, that's gotta be a bucket list thing. <laughs> For you, for me, for, Greg. for me to watch that game, to watch you versus Phil, one of the greatest whales of all time, according to Daniel Negrano. Uh, the so back on the analytics thing, I think you're right about coaches. I think I think at the end of the day, one of the reasons why a lot of teams and coaches have embraced it is because a they want any competitive advantage they can get, and b like for a while it was a pretty easy thing to sh- to prove and show your work. I mean, like when. When the top, when one of the top three or four teams in puck possession each year is the team winning the cup, it's kind of easy to say the better your team, a team is in Corsi, the better it's going to be for your team. Um, but I guess there's an opposite side of that where not only do some teams struggle that embrace analytics, like I think John Chaka is going through that right now with the Coyotes, but sometimes you have players that are hyped up as being really good possession guys that maybe get a free agent contract because of it or or the, the signing is seen as being good and then it doesn't work out. And then unfortunately that becomes this gigantic, I don't know, example of the faultiness of analytics in the eyes of media that don't necessarily believe in it. Yeah. Honestly, I think a lot of that stuff is more prevalent, frankly, in the public public sphere or in the media or mm-hmm. social media there's or a public private split on this then yeah, yeah. It, i mean that kind of thing doesn't really go on that much like behind the privately. scenes at a team like if benoit pouliot doesn't work out they're not saying all right analytics is joke it's bad science no and i don't think that necessarily the way that the public sphere would come to certain conclusions about certain players would be exactly the way that i would right or you know, I mean, I can only speak for myself. Um, as far as the coaching thing, yeah, I mean, I think there's some of it in terms of, hey, listen, these are the teams that have won. Here are these stats. 
But I think it's even deeper than that. It's really talking about the nitty gritty of the game. And I mean, coaches, they see everything, Mm -hmm. you know, they see everything that's happening with their players. They're around the players on a day to day basis. They see it at ice level. Don't get me wrong. They have biases. Sure. Just like all humans do. And I think, you know, for me, I can, so let me say this. I think that for me and even for a lot of the early adapters of analytics, our goal was never really to supplant coaches with analytics. My goal, and, and I see some of that happening right now in the public sphere or whatever, and it's not just limited to hockey, but in a lot of ways. To me, I, my goal was really to use analytics to make smarter bets, to use the information mm-hmm. that coaches have. I mean, it's no different than trading. You know, the best the best oil traders aren't necessarily the, the people that know the most about oil. You have analysts for that. Right. You're not trying to use analytics to, like, tell the analyst he's wrong. You're trying to use his information. And for me, the dialogue with the coaches was, was no different than that. It was right. me listening to them and saying, what do you see here? And then me saying... That's interesting. Let me look in the data. We'll look at this, you know, and then they'd say, oh, that's interesting, too. I mean, it was it was very much a two-way dialogue. So we also want to talk about what's next. And player tracking is something Greg mentioned a little before we got on the air. How much of a benefit is that information going to be to teams? So, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I guess partly what I was saying about hockey being behind other sports, that would be the big thing is that we don't yet have XYZ data. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, I think it will be a benefit. I think it's going to take some time. I think, you know, when you get data of that magnitude, you have to have the right people to parse it and to make sense of it. And frankly, to some extent, it could produce a lot of red herrings for teams that don't necessarily use it correctly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no question. I mean, it can only help people who are doing things the right way. Do you think the players will ever go for it? I've, I've always been of the mind that like one of the reasons we don't have it yet is because the NHLPA doesn't necessarily want it because well, I don't think players really want to know exactly how how healthy they are, uh, exactly what th- their puck possession numbers are. I think, I think the more vague you keep it, the better it is for players as far as contracts and such. Well, in the NFL, when I used to cover it, there was a big battle brewing between the NFLPA and the NFL with this information because they said, who is it proprietary to? Because at this point, the NFL owned it when they were talking about the player tracking and saying, that's not cool for players and, you know, negotiations. Like, they don't want the team to have that information and they can't use it to their benefit um, of saying, hey, look, his hamstring has, you know, is going to blow out in X amount of games because he's been running this amount. Yeah, the medical stuff for sure is, mm-hmm. it gets it gets dicey. Um, the performance metrics, I don't know, you know? I mean, I think they're... When you get a a more nuanced view of what's happening on the ice, it's going to make certain players look better and certain players look worse. So I'm not necessarily sure that that's globally a good or a bad thing. It's indifferent. Last one for me. Um, this has been a really weird year in the NHL insofar as scoring being crazy up. <laughs> uh, maybe expansion plays a role in that. Maybe it's just an anomaly. I mean, it's the highest scoring, I think, on average year that we've had in maybe a decade. So when you deal, how do you deal with that from an analytic perspective? Analytics being, I think, you know, sometimes they can tell you what's happened. Other cases, they can be maybe a little predictive. When you get a season like this, that's kind of off the wall. How do you factor that into the overall trends for players, say, in a a two or three year period? 
So scoring's up, but it, I think it's up like 7%. Mm-hmm. If you look at year over year, I think it's up about 7%. And I believe a third of that, maybe a quarter of that, is just from empty net goals. Hmm. And in addition to that, I think something like 10% of it is just due to shootouts. Like more games are going to the shootout. The empty net goals thing is interesting because, I mean, I think we've all seen games be really competitive. Um, and it seems like because of scoring being whatever it is this season, like a lot of teams aren't out of games. And I feel like a lot of games are close, which I guess would probably mean there's more empty net opportunities. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I also think maybe coaches are... In general, it, it seems to be more accepted these days to be more aggressive pulling your goaltender. You're down down 4-2 with six minutes left and you yank your goalie. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, I mean, Patrick Waugh. I remember <laughs> I remember a game Chicago played against us a couple of years ago, and I forget exactly what it was, but I want to say they were down two or three, and they pulled their goaltender with like 15 minutes left. <laughs> you did that? The the Blackhawks did. Yeah, like Coach Q. Yeah, yeah, wow. Q did that. Yeah, hmm. um, he must have been really pissed at his brand. at his team. Yeah, there, there definitely could have <laughs> been was, something that like that. <laughs> it, it, it definitely could have been something like that. But I just remember thinking, wow, this is not something you'd see ten years ago. Well, my last question for you is: Do you have an ideal time for pulling the goaltender? Did you come up with a formula of yeah, in this situation, it's two minutes? I did. I mean, I have a model for yeah. it. I built a model for it. I think it's a bit more nuanced than just saying what what time. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the data that people use in the models to come up with that sort of thing is data that's based empirically on historical empty net data. And that data is already somewhat biased. I mean, you're talking about data that has been observed generally with 90 seconds left in the game when people are playing their best players. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily feasible to apply that model and say that that would work with six minutes left. Hmm. Because, you know, you can keep Crosby, Malkin, Latang, and all your top guns out there for 90 seconds and say, you know, just sprint to the finish line. You can't do it for six minutes. Right. Um, and I think there's other interesting things that can can play into it, whether, like, it's, you know, where is the puck when when you pull, I think mm-hmm. there's a lot yeah. of interesting things that can can still be done. Having said that, it's I mean, there's these are small small edges, you know. Um, if you, if you look at it, if you really crunch the numbers on how much you're gaining by pulling at <clears throat> two twenty versus two minutes, I mean, it's it's small, but it I mean it's there, but it's it's small. Five minutes left, you're down a goal. You get a power play. You pull the goalie. Most likely. Yeah, I love that answer. They should, it should always be the answer, but it hardly ever is. I'll have to go back and, and look. Um, no, there's no need to. Your answer is correct. <laughs> <laughs> we don't care about your math. Sonny, what's up next for you, man? You're being you're being cagey about what your next endeavor is going to be. You left it. We should say you left the Devils about maybe like eight weeks ago. Uh, and, staying in and, hockey, and you're staying in hockey. Are there any hints you can give the ESPN on ice listeners as far as what you're doing next? No. All right. Oh, that's even better. Well, when he does make a decision, folks, you're guaranteed to hear it eventually on this podcast because we're weekly. We won't have it first. Yeah. I mean, unless it happens literally while we're taping. (laughs) But we really appreciate your time. I think I could ask you a million questions and become smarter for it. So thanks for answering like seven of them. We'll do the rest of them at the diner. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, honey.
over some cheese fries and Slovakian <laughs> tongue. Thanks, guys. Our thanks to Sonny Meta, an awesome dude, a brilliant dude, uh, and an insightful dude for joining us on ESPN and Ice. I learned a lot. The, the, his, his, I don't know if his empty net goals equaling scoring spike thing necessarily correlates, <laughs> but when you say it like he does, it makes you think that it's the case. It's so interesting. I mean, firstly, just the path to where he got where he is. He's lived so many interesting and successful lives. But just to know what's going on behind the scenes and how a guy like maybe Lou Lamarillo, who we didn't expect, is really embracing that stuff, that was illuminating to me. Indeed. And uh, speaking of illuminating, it's time for our favorite segment each week. <laughs> Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. Good one, Randy. Oh. Good one. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, Phil Kessel eats hot dogs. No, I, I mean, he does love them, though, right? Yeah. No, no, no. You're creating a fake narrative again. You're just feeding into it. He just eats the hot dogs. We don't know if he loves them or not. He just eats them. It's he our segment. Eats them. It's our segment each week about media hype. Um, it's a story <laughs> that we pick out each week in which we uh, talk about how it was blown up by the media. And honestly, there isn't another story in 50 miles of this one, which is the... Ryan Rashog Al Montoya controversy from uh, from February first. If you haven't seen it, Ryan Rashog is a great reporter for TSN, a television guy, nice dude. Um, he tweeted about how Al Montoya doesn't talk on game days, needs to focus. The only Oiler who does this, why should it be different for him? The only conclusion is that he's more fragile in his preparation, or he's ducking responsibility. With this silly loophole, neither are great qualities for a goalie. Maybe you're familiar with the term ratioed uh, that happens occasionally on Twitter. And uh, Ryan Rashog's tweet from February 1st that we just read, 46 retweets, 180 faves, and 1,300 comments. <laughs> Can I tell you... This is maybe like totally nitpicking it and maybe I'm making a bigger deal of this, but something that didn't sit well with me was last week was Bill's Let's Talk week, right? Where we like destigmatize right. mental health and we're all having open conversations about it. And then to go and say that you, no one doesn't talk to you, so you call them fragile. Like it just didn't sit well with me. I don't know. Yeah. He, he later apologized for that, did Rashog, uh, for the phrasing right. of his, his comment. But I mean, we kind of all know what he's saying. He's saying that like, Montoya is a flake and he can't talk on game days because he's just not mentally tough to, to handle the responsibilities of being a goaltender that day and talking to the media that day. First of all, it kind of surprised me. Like I know that there is a, there are rules in place to have access to players on game day. A lot of goalies just typically don't talk. I mean, mm -hmm. and it's become sort of accepted that if you're the, the goalie that day, you're not going to necessarily talk. Um, and, and so that sort of surprised me that this was even that big of a controversy. Uh, but then later on, after the game, uh, we, they, we had a little tete-a-tete uh, -tete between Montoya and Rashog that sounded a little bit like this. This is why you play hockey. So uh, the, the score was tough, but, you know, it was a, it was a battle and uh, trying to give the team a chance. You get the feeling like your team is going to battle their way back into it and you guys are playing? Someone else? Oh, man. My sphincter just clenched. Cold. <laughs> Someone else? Someone else? No. I love it. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting to me? You're talking about guys who speak on game days and who don't. Um, 
one of my buddies works for an NFL team. And he's in media relations. And he said that they have a rule where I guess you're allowed to allot three guys as once a week guys who can just speak once a week. Oh. And he said by the end of the year when the team wasn't doing well, like 17 guys are like, I'm once a week guy. I'm a once a week guy. <laughs> I thought it was awesome. But look, the dynamics um, of the locker room are always such that like, you know, there's, there's guys that talk and guys that, you know, aren't necessarily going to talk, especially on game days. And, you know, that's why, you know, when I was covering the Capitals, like, uh, someone like Brooks Like, for example, who, you know, was an important part of the team, such as it is, but by no means was he Alex Ovechkin or Mike Green or, or Nick Backstrom, would kind of become the de facto ambassador to the media. He'd go up there and he would just give you the, what's going on and give you some quotes, quotesies and, and then go from there. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic, the, 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 the NHL locker room. What's it like in Chicago? Does it, do all the boys talk on all the game days in Chicago or are they, is no, it the designated uh, ambassadors as well in Chicago? Like why I give Patrick Kane a ton of credit is he's always after morning skate sitting in front of his locker and always gets a huge scrum. Um, the goalies don't usually talk. Uh, sometimes we'll get a tase very rarely. Um, mm. not on, and morning skates usually talks after games. Seabrook and Keith aren't there. Then like all of a sudden, like if Connor Murphy's talking, there's like this huge scrum because he's a great talker and he just, you know, kind of shoulders one for the team. But we were talking about it actually today because as we're recording this, the flames are in town and their locker room was awesome. They were super loose and apparently like they're just much better on the road and at home they're really uptight. And I think guys are sometimes better talking on the road though because, you know, it's less of a routine. You know, you don't know, you're not trying to run home. You're just going back to the hotel. You're just in a little yeah. more of a jovial mood. That's funny because when Edmonton came through earlier, earlier this year, none of those guys seemed like they ever wanted to talk to the media ever again. So I, I, it definitely had something to do with the way they're covered back in Edmonton, as Taylor Hall has, has mentioned to me uh, earlier this mm-hmm. year about the way that the Edmonton media just beats the joy out of you. And, and I feel like that's happened to the, to the Oilers in some sense. So it's good to say, it's good to see the Flames haven't haven't lost their smile, but maybe and they, they were awesome they, this morning. They tend, yeah, they tend to find it easier on the road. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now it's time for Puck Headlines, where we take you around the world of hockey and other things to uh, bring you news and views. Dateline, Nashville. Mike Fisher and others call Philip Forsberg's three-game suspension for hitting Jimmy Vesey in the head and cussing him a joke. I thought it was actually... You know, the interesting thing that we're seeing this year with this and the Andrew Cogliano thing are players kind of saying... This is a class of guy that shouldn't be given suspensions of this length. Uh, they're good dudes. They made a mistake. You know, cut them a break. And I'm like, but why? <laughs> like, I, I, I never understood the idea that you have a good guy exception for doing what Philip Forsberg did, which was hitting a guy in the head without the puck in a part of the ice he shouldn't be expecting that hit. And then getting suspended for it. Like, he completely earned it, I felt. Right. I think that whole argument contradicts the entire thesis or purpose or philosophy of why we have a player safety department. Because we understand that sometimes good players make bad plays and we need to punish it so it doesn't happen again. And in this case, um, maybe they were upset that it wasn't disciplined during the game. He got no penalties during right. the game and then all of a sudden comes out with the three games. But that's the market correcting itself. And it's like, look, <laughs> you injured one of your peers. He has a concussion. That's very bad. You're going to have to sit out for that. A lot of market correction this week. Shout out. A lot of market correction. I'm just trying to throw in my jokes there while I can. (laughs) Hey, what did you think of the Larry Brooks idea that uh, he kind of, he didn't really flesh it out, but he mentioned it. The idea that it's almost unfair to the Rangers 
that Philip Forsberg uh, didn't wasn't wasn't allowed to play against the Islanders, the team the Rangers are chasing. Brooks was kind of indicating almost like the team that was fouled, the the the, the team that loses their player to injury uh, should have a chance to maybe pick and choose where where the suspended player misses time. Do you, do you dig that idea, or do you think it sort of overcomplicates things? I dig the idea that if Larry Brooks wants to write a book of conspiracy theories and alternative rules to the NHL, I would buy 10 copies. <laughs> That's only, if John, that. only if John Tortorella writes the forward. All right. Dateline, Washington, D.C. T.J. Oshie slams the Department of Player Safety for its inconsistency. Quote, it seems like the discipline really depends on who the hitter is and how many games they've played and who they play for. So he thinks that there is a sort of meritocracy, I suppose, as far as who gets suspended and who doesn't, which is, again, kind of counter to what we heard in the first uh, 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 puck headline, which is the uh, the fact that, uh, you know, Forsberg maybe shouldn't have been suspended because he is a good guy. It's a weird deal. Yeah, it is a weird deal and shocking. Uh, a player who was disciplined doesn't agree with the discipline. Uh, I thought it was really interesting when Oshie made his comments and they asked Barry Trotz about him and he's like, yeah, TJ and I are going to address that privately. Like, that's not for all of you to share. Um, I thought it was a little bit of a low blow to George Peros. He, like, brought up the fact that he was a fighter and maybe he treats fighters differently. I didn't quite get the conspiracy theory going there. Um, TJ is obviously someone who has been on the receiving end of some pretty bad hits. Um, that's affected him. But I don't think they were looking at TJ and was like, you know, he didn't defend himself. Gotta, gotta suspend him. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think, I think in the Department of Player Safety, there's always these accusations of favoritism and, and things like that. And if you play for a certain team, you get the breaks and other guys don't. I, I always bring it back to that one thing, which is that neither Dave Steckel nor Victor Hedman were suspended for concussing Sidney Crosby and having to miss a good chunk of the season. Um, Dateline Ottawa. Bruce Garriock of the Ottawa Sun believes, uh, that Eric Carlson will still be with the Senators on July 1st when the team can finally hear what he's looking for insofar as a contract extension. So perhaps we should all slow our roles collectively uh, when it comes to the potential of Eric Carlson being traded at this trade deadline uh, to join his friends in Tampa. Because honestly, at this point, Emily, we all just want him in Tampa. Yeah, no, this is this is snowballed pretty quickly. Uh, look, I am still in the camp to believe that it's more media hysteria than it is the senators actually, you know, legitimately plotting an exit for Eric Carlson at this point. I think they still don't know what they're doing. You know, they've got to figure out, are they keeping Guy Boucher? Are they making other wholesale changes before you make, you know, the decision of what you're going to do with your franchise player? But I see this as a situation like we're seeing in Montreal with Max Pacioretty, where they're like, look, we do know we can, you know, reap some value from this, but we're in no rush. Like, we're going to hear every offer we get and try to, you know, get a bidding war here. And that's why Max Pacioretty, there's a good chance he's not going to get moved at the deadline. I'd be surprised. I mean, he's got another year on his deal. I think he puts someone over the top more, obviously more than Nash does. But I'm kind of with you. Like, it all depends on what prices are coming back and who wants to pay him. I don't know if the prices are going to be there for what they'd be looking for for trading Pacioretty. But again, like I've mentioned on Puck Soup a few times, NHL players love their stuff. They want to know where their stuff is. And his stuff's in Ottawa, Eric Carlson. And I'm still thinking to myself, at the end of the day, these are creatures of habit. These are creatures of habitat. And I'm still not convinced he's going to leave unless, of course, he just decides, and this is a very logical conclusion, that Jeff Finnick is a billion times better an owner 
than you is, is Eugene Milnick, uh, which is obvious. Uh, Dateline Pyeongchang. Emily, what is your excitement level for the men's Olympic ice hockey tournament as we are days away from it beginning? I think it's at a, a medium level of excitement. I think, mm. uh, you know, I've circled my calendars of which games I want to watch. Honestly, I'm more excited for the women's tournament. And I think it's because I've started to write a couple stories about some of these women athletes from Amanda Kessel. She was on the podcast briefly, but wrote a piece. It's crazy to me. Like she is the star, the number one player. She is a name brand recognition. And she's talking about when she comes back from the Olympics, I kind of need to get a job. Like maybe I'm going to be a part time waitress. <laughs> I also wrote a story about Caroline Park. She's this uh, Ivy League med student who's playing on for the Korean team, and she has been training for the last five years to be on the South Korean team, and a week before the Olympics, they're like, nah, you guys got 12 North Koreans here because we're using you guys as a political pawn. So that's an interesting dynamic. Yeah. So all my point is to say, I think there's just way more interesting storylines in the women's tournament than there are in the men's. Plus the overriding one, which is the USA-Canada blood feud, right. which continues. And, and obviously the Americans are looking to break through and finally win gold. Since I'm not going to be there, they probably will. Um, on the men's side... Scale of one to ten, ten being free guac at Chipotle, <laughs> one being that they're out of carnitas. I'd say my excitement is probably around a f- four. I've what kind of the cra- I've, beans? <laughs> I've crashed lately. I uh, I was really excited about it. I kind of I had kind of convinced myself that that this tournament was going to be super fun and. And it was going to be chaotic and there was going to be new heroes made. And I was going to be down with trying to see Brian Gianta and Derek Roy and guys like that trying to win gold. Um, the, the closer we get to it, the more bummed I am that I feel like we have seen peak Olympics with the NHL players involved. It's still going to be fun. It's still hockey. It's still the Olympics. It's still hearing the anthems and all that jive. And I got a, a story coming up on ESPN this week about that very thing, why there's still reasons to get excited for it. But it's not the NHL players, and I'm still kind of I've, I've I finally have come down off my uh, my brief sugar high to admit that it's going to be sort of a bummer to see this Olympic thing play out. Yeah, you know. Finally, uh, Dateline Nintendo. In perhaps the week's biggest news, Nintendo officially confirmed that the beloved character Toad is in fact not wearing a hat but rather has a giant, bulbous mushroom head. This came as a shock to me. <laughs> it looked like Wait. he was wearing the kind of hat that, you, you know, your stoner friend might wear. And no. I always thought that made him kind of cool. But He was always a mushroom to me. It was always that you was You never thought head. he was wearing a hat. No, and I didn't even know this was a controversy that they were going to need to address. And then the stock market plunged. <laughs> And I was like, oh, shoot. Hours after this news hit. Um, yeah, I always assumed that, that he was wearing a hat. Uh, I always assumed that, like, if he was going out somewhere stylish with a date of some sort, he would maybe put on a different mushroom cap. No, he can't because it's his head. Formal. Like, you can't just change your head when you're going on a date, Greg. It disturbs me that that's the case. Um, yeah. that, that is actually his head. It seemed more I- or less attractive in your head. I think it's like one of these deals where there's so many damn hats in Mario World. Mario's got a hat. Luigi's got a hat. Waluigi's got a hat. Wario's got a hat. The Princess Toadstool's got a crown. Bowser probably has a hat, I think. Maybe. Many hats. But Toad is is just a, a, a mutant. It was very depressing. Just be when kind you play, to everyone, no matter what they look like. 
When you played, well, that's the life lesson, isn't it? When you played Mario Kart, who would you use? Um, I would use Toad. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not anymore that I know he's a Oh, deformed, now I'm going to use freak. him with fervor. <laughs> 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 All right. Let's go to voicemails. How it Let's go be. to voicemails. Yes, after that t- Titanic end of the puck headlines. And uh, let's just you- give one reminder that you can call in and leave your own voicemail. If you listen to this and like, that guy had so much fun calling, I can call too. So you dial 860-516-1029. Again, 860-516-1029 and talk to us. Hey, Greg and Emily. Big fan of the podcast. I'm just calling in to ask... Should Columbus start selling now? At the time of the voicemail, they just lost to the Islanders 4-3. to three. Uh, They made Yaroslav Halak look like Patty Waugh. Uh, the team is incapable of scoring goals. Panarin has no help. Uh, I know a lot of fans want to buy so they can get someone to help Brett and Bob drag this team to another first-round playoff exit. I'm of the school of thought they should try to sell to uh, make room for the upcoming paydays and maybe try to get a player for longer than half a season. Thoughts? Well, I mean, I think you should be a bit more, you know, sunny side of life on the Blue Jackets. They've got an outstanding goaltender. They've got some good players. Uh, I, w- I I think they're a playoff team and, and, and maybe could make hay depending on what the first round matchup is. I think their roster has a couple parts that are a little bit uh, uh, concerning, uh, particularly Brandon Dubinsky, because who the hell knows? And he's making 5.85 through 2021. And then it's funny, like, everybody seems to have forgotten Jack Johnson wants to get traded. Like, it just kind of came and went. Uh, where the whole world, as, as does happen around trade deadline, whole world was talking about it for about a day and then people just forgot about it. So, um, I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't believe that this is a team that's in a position where you need to start selling off assets or, or what have you. I, I, I feel like they're a team that's still pointed in the right direction and, and maybe it's more of a, a tweak than a reshaping that needs to occur. But I do see the caller's point where he says, look, we do need to make some space. For guys like Artemi Panarin, who are going to need paydays. And I can't imagine as a Blue Jackets fan watching this year and being like, oh, my goodness, Artemi Panarin's awesome. He's so good. He's so skilled. And we're just going to let him walk away in a year whenever his contract's up. Mm-hmm. So I do see the urgency to try to create space and make that priority. They obviously gave out a ton of contract extensions in the beginning of the year. But um, I would definitely make Panarin a priority. But I don't know if that's where uh, they're thinking. I agree, but I think ultimately that comes down to what Panarin wants to do. I mean, I don't think it's anything. I think the Blue Jackets obviously want to keep him. I think it's just if he wants to stay in Columbus. He signed through 2019. The, the, the summer 2019 is the uh, the, the time of, of great concern if you're a Blue Jackets fan because you have Panarin up and you have Zach Wierenski up uh, in, in the same uh, the same summer. So, yeah, there needs and to be gotta some – And you've got to keep both. Yeah, you have to. <laughs> well, you there definitely has to have to be keep some... For sure. There has to be some salary reconsideration, but sell off. Come on, man. You got to be in it to win it. And I think the Blue Jackets be in it. Doesn't mean they're going to win it, but they'll be in it. And that's good enough. All right. That's ESPN on ice for this week. Our thanks to Sonny Maida for joining us for as long as he did. That was an incredibly insightful conversation with the dude. Like I said earlier, doesn't do a lot of media. So we are very uh, honored that he gave us his time. And, uh, yeah, enjoy Olympic opening ceremonies this week. That'll be very pageantry and beautiful. And keep in mind, if you're on the East Coast, 
those hockey games next week start around 7.15 in the morning. And keep in mind, if you're on the West Coast, that finally you're the ones getting screwed by the start time of a sporting event instead of getting up at 11 o'clock in the morning to watch NFL football. <laughs> I'm Greg Wyshynski of ESPN. Emily Kaplan. Bye. <laughs> Bye. This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.